0: Good evening, church. Grace and peace to you all. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul's letter to the Galatians will be in chapter 4 this evening. We'll be looking at verses 21 to 31. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. And the title of my sermon this evening is either freedom or slavery. Either freedom or slavery. And once you find your places in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31, please stand with me, loved ones, for the public reading of scripture. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this evening. Galatians 4, verses 21 to 31, either freedom or slavery. This is the word of God, church. Starting here in Galatians 4.21, Paul the Apostle writes, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of God. Let's go before him in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this day that you have given us. God, we just thank you, Lord, for the grace, the gift to be able to gather in your name, Father, as the church, the family of God, as brothers and sisters, united by our faith in you, just to come together and sing songs of praise to you for what you have done, King Jesus. And God, to once again on this Lord's Day, to gather in your name, Father, to hear your word preached. And God, we thank you for these graces. We thank you for these gifts. And I just pray, Lord, for my church family, for my brothers and sisters here, and anyone um, joining us virtually virtually. Lord, we I just pray that you just fill them with your um, Spirit, Lord. That God they'll be hearers of your word, who just are refreshed by your words of life and your Scriptures today. And that God they'll become more like your Son Jesus, so that God they are equipped, Lord, to go out into this week, Lord, to, to be your to not only be your disciples, but Lord, to be lights um, to those in their, in their in their lives, Lord. So that God they can just glorify you where you have, them, Lord, in their lives, Lord. I pray that for my brothers and sisters here, and anyone, Lord, who who, who listens to the sermon who doesn't believe in you, Lord, we pray for their salvation. Um, we just pray that, Lord, just that, that this, the seed of the gospel, Lord, will just be planted in your hearts, and that God, by the Spirit, you will just water it, Lord, and that God, you will grow it so that, Lord, they will come to saving faith in you. And for myself, Lord, fill me with your spirit, Lord, that I, that I do not mess it up in any way, but that, Lord, it is your word going to your people, and that your word this evening will feed your lambs so that, God, they are more like you, King Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this day. We just lift up these things in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Maybe see the church. This past week, I picked up on a new concept people are referring to as "dinks." Now, I know that sounds like a weird insult, but it's actually a badge of honor. It's a badge of honor floating around on social media. And it's actually an acronym for households standing for double income and no kids. Double income and no kids. And although this concept has existed in American culture for the past few decades, it has recently taken TikTok by storm. Millions of people have been watching these short videos of young couples, whether they're married or not, boasting about their child-free lifestyle, and they highlight their financial freedom. The freedom to travel, or maybe the freedom to financially save and plan for the future, like maybe have a family one day, or just the freedom to splurge on various wants beyond their needs. And what these couples want to make clear is that they don't want to make other couples with kids feel bad. They just want to offer another lifestyle. Another choice for couples who feel feel pressure to have kids who may not want them, especially since raising them is so expensive today. And as a result, there has been great positive feedback to this cultural phenomenon. For example, one person tweeted, the little dinks, dual income, no kids trend on TikTok is how I aspire to be. That's what one person tweeted. Or another person tweets, I always thought I would want kids eventually later in my life, but ever since I saw a TikTok of a dink couple, I'm starting to think that's more the life for me. Why do I let TikTok invade my thoughts like this? And it was when I read that last question that it got me thinking. It got me really thinking about this trend. What's really going on here? What are people really longing for in their hearts regarding this trend? or trend? And not only that, but why is it so attractive to people? Why is it so attractive to many in the culture, especially amongst the younger generations? And as I was just kind of brainstorming thinking about it, Um, I just kind of put a couple things together, like this idea of being financially free. They have the freedom to choose whoever their partner is, not being strapped down by children, at least for a season. It just made sense that, well, this is just another expression. This is just another expression of perhaps America's most treasured value, and that value is individual freedom. And although individualism, freedom, they're not bad ideas in themselves, right? Yet it got me thinking, is this dink trend really a path to true freedom. And not only that, but is it really a path to truly flourish as a human being in life? And that leads to the bigger question. What is the path? What is the way to true freedom leading to lasting human flourishing in this life? And what I can tell you loved ones and anyone listening online that there is a better path. That there is a greater way to true human flourishing than what this trend or anything else in the culture can offer. And it's the Bible's vision. For freedom. This is the lesson that Paul wants the Galatian Christians to understand tonight because Christians, and this is the main point here, Christians are the most free people in the world. That's Paul's point here in, in this passage in Galatians, and that is the main point of my sermon tonight. Christians are the most free people in the world. Now, I know that statement might be shocking to some. John, how is it that Christians are the most free people in the world? And if an unbeliever is listening to this, they might be like, well, if anything, Christians seem to be the most enslaved people because they, they, they just seem to be strapped down to the words of this ancient book. At least that's what the culture thinks. And yet, Paul defends this claim. Paul defends his claim by sharing a famous story in the Bible, and he's going to do so in two steps. So the first step is that he illustrates the passage. Paul illustrates the passage he's going to share here tonight. And the second step is, is that he applies its principle. He applies the principle of the passage he is going to share tonight. And so with that in mind then, loved ones, let's turn to the first step of how Christians are really indeed the most free people in the world. And so the first step that he does is is that Paul illustrates the passage. Paul illustrates the passage he is going to share this evening. And So look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Paul begins the passage tonight by saying to the Galatians, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And so, what Paul is doing here is that he's preparing for the final section of his letter to the Galatians, which, as you will see in chapters five to six when I get there next time, he is about to prepare for the practical application of how to live out the gospel. Because so far, Paul has been doing two things. In chapters one to two, he first begins by defending his God given authority as an apostle. The preaching of the gospel, and once he does that, he then goes to chapters three and four and defends the content of its message, which is really that a Christian, whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile, non-Jew, you are all saved by your faith in Christ alone. That's what Paul has been doing here, and why does Paul find that necessary to do so? Well, you've been well if you've been following me in this series in Galatians, if you look early in the in the, in the letter, the Galatians. There was a problem here. The Galatians are turning to a different gospel. In other words, the Galatians are turning from the gospel of Christ that Paul first preached to them, and they're turning that to a different gospel, to that of a false news. What is that false news? Well, what you had here is that you've had these Jewish Christians. They're from Jerusalem. I'll call them Judaizers. They came to these churches in Galatia, and they were telling to the Galatians, hey, we agree with Paul. We agree you need to believe in Jesus as the Messiah to be saved, and yet we also tell you that Paul didn't tell you the full story. Paul said that you need to believe in Jesus by faith alone, but we tell you you need to believe in Jesus and do good works of the law. That was the difference there. Paul says that you are only saved by your faith in Christ alone, and that's the gospel, and Paul defends it. And yet, these Judaizers, these false teachers, were deceiving the Galatians and saying, No, you believe in Jesus and do good works. That is how you become a follower of Jesus. That is how you become a Christian. And Paul hears that, and he says, That is not true. As a result, Galatians, Paul tells them, Become like me. He commands them. Galatians, become like me. And what Paul is doing here ultimately is that he is calling the Galatians to stop trusting in their own performance for salvation. Stop trusting in yourself, Galatians. Don't listen to these Judaizers. They're not for you, they're against you. Instead, trust in Jesus. Trust in his sufficient work on the cross and rest in that reality because Christ paid it all on the cross for you. And if they do that, if they obey and listen to Paul's advice here, then they will experience this freedom. This freedom that can only come by trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. But if they don't, if they ignore Paul's warning here in the letter to the Galatians and just keep falling with what the Judaizers are telling them, then they will become enslaved They will become enslaved to their own method of trying to save themselves. And it's because of this, right? This is Paul is under great emotional stress here. He is he he is expressing his love and concern for the Galatians, but look at what he says in in the passage last week. I talked about this last time, but look at what he says in Galatians 4:19 to 20 that kind of introduces to our passage here. He says to the Galatians, my little children, this is by the way, the only way he calls anyone his little children. John the Apostle usually uses this language, but Paul only uses this phrase here to the Galatians. Again, it just shows his emotional stress, his concern for the Galatians. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So it's it's this emotional stress that really begins Paul to say what he has to say, starting here in Galatians 4.21, and he begins by asking them a question. Galatians, I'm so concerned about you. You guys want to be under the law, but let me ask you a question. Do you not listen to the law? And really consider what Paul means by calling the Galatians those who want to be under the law. What he means there is that he is referring to to really the enslaving power of the law of Moses itself. This is something that Paul has made clear like in Galatians chapter 3 that they try to be saved by good works of the law but the only thing that the law can do to them is enslave them to the very curse of the law itself. And that's why Paul asks them that rhetorical question. Galatians, you want to be under the law but do you not listen to the law itself? And what Paul is getting at there is that Galatians, you want to live according to the law? All right, but do you not know what the law says? And what's interesting there is that that word for listening it's actually alluding back to the, to the Shema, right? One of the famous passages in the law itself. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or other translations, listen, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that word for listen here, which is also very similar here in our passage tonight in Galatians, that word for listen is not just, let me hear what you have to say, right? That's not what that word just means in the Hebrew. What, 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 what Paul was alluding to is like, they listen to obey, I'm going to hear what you're saying so that I may also obey. And what Paul was trying to get the Galatians to consider is that Galatians, if you really wanted to be under the law, then you would realize that from the law itself, it's impossible, it's impossible to be saved by the law. Let me repeat that. If the Galatians really knew their Bible, if they knew what the law said, they would know that, wait, the law says we cannot be saved by the law. Yes, we're called to obey God, to obey his commandments, to keep his commandments, but we're sinners. We're all lawbreakers, and as a result, I cannot be saved by good works of the law. I'm not perfect. If anything, I am a lawbreaker. And so Paul is really calling out, if anything, the inconsistency of the Galatians' thinking here so, again, he can get them back to right thinking, back to not trusting in themselves, but back to trusting in Jesus by faith alone. And this exhortation that Paul begins our section here, it's really relevant today, right? Because like the Galatians, they were hearing conflicting voices. They were hearing Paul trying to bring them back to the gospel. And yet they had these Judaizers in the side of their ear telling them something different. And I'm not sure about you, but maybe you felt the same way in your life. Maybe maybe you have, like, like like there's so like John, there's so much conflicting voices that I have to deal with in my life, right? And I'm referring to everything in the culture, whether it be politics, the news, you know, religion, ideologies, all these different voices, right? And if, if you're not careful, but like, John, it's kind of confusing. Like the Galatians, it is confusing to know which voice to listen to, right? Do I listen to that person or that person? Who do I listen to? And not only that, but who is speaking the truth? And I, and I, and I bring that up, right, because... For the Galatians, they're, they're in a crossroads. Are we going to listen to Paul, or are we going to listen to these Judaizers? And for us as Christians, there's going to be those times when we hear multiple different voices on, on very hard issues. Am I going to listen to this, or am I going to follow that person's lead? What do I do? And I think just to, just to give something for you all, just a couple questions to think about, just to kind of help decipher um, through this particular dilemma This is something that we actually went through the youth group on this past week, and I'll just share these questions because I think they're helpful with situations like this. The first question is, who has the right to tell me what is true? Who has the right to tell me what is true? It's a question about authority. Who has the right to tell me what is true and what is not true? And that leads to the second question. Who knows what is best for me? Who has right knowledge leading to right authority? And 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 at the end of the day, when you keep those two questions in mind, Who has the right to tell me what is right and wrong? Who knows what's best for me? The third question is, who loves me and who wants what's best for me, right? Who can I trust, right? And I think if the Galatians were to, if we asked the Galatians these three questions, right, they'd be like, huh, Paul's the guy. Paul's the one that we should trust because his knowledge is based on the authority of God's word. And I share that, right, because there might be times when you might hear many different voices, I can give one voice from the culture that generally will say that. Just listen to your heart, man. Just do what's seen right in your own eyes. And yet, yeah, I question that and say, well, how can you really know what's best for you in your life? And what I can say now, right, if there's anyone here who struggles with that, I can at least tell you this, and this is what Paul's trying to get at with the Galatians, that when it comes to Christ, when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to the Christ of the Gospels, he is always someone that you can trust. You know why? Because he always wants what's best for you. Although Christ will disagree with you, right? It's always because he wants what's best for you. Since he is filled with great compassion and love for people, people for the past 2,000 years have considered what he believes is best for them because they recognize his authority. They not only view him as his great moral philosopher, he is so much more than that. People for the past 2,000 years have placed their faith in Christ not only as a mere teacher, but as the risen Lord and as a response He is someone that they have always trusted, and he is a voice that you can always trust as well. This is what Paul is trying to do again to the Galatians tonight. He wants to gain the trust of the Galatians. He wants them to to return back to Christ. And what Paul is going to do here tonight is that he's going to do so by presenting a story, a very famous story from the Old Testament to the Galatians. And it's the events surrounding two Old Testament women, a woman named Hagar and another named Sarah. Let's look at how Paul begins this in Galatians chapter 4, verses 22 to 23. Paul begins by saying, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. And so although Paul says it is written, he's actually not quoting any particular passages here. What he's doing instead is that he actually summarizes the story or the main events surrounding these two women, Hagar and Sarah. And if you want to find the source material to the story, um, go. I recommend you go reading Genesis 15 to 21. It's, it's a big chunk of scripture. But that's where Paul is summarizing these events from. And yet that begs the question, who is Hagar and Sarah? Especially if there's anyone here who doesn't know who they are. Well, in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible One of the major themes in that book, which begins in Genesis, and it goes all the way out through the rest of the Bible, it is this promise of a seed, the seed promise that God promises um, to Eve, to Adam, that through your seed, there's going to be this person who's going to conquer sin and death forevermore, right? And this is the exact same promise that God promises to a guy named Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation. And so you have this guy named Abraham, and you have his wife, Sarah, the one person that we want to keep in mind today. You have these two people, right? And God promises them a seed, like, hey, you guys are going to have a son of promise, and I'm going to do great things through your family, but there's a, there's a slight problem. Abraham and Sarah, they're old. They're very old to the point that it would, it's almost impossible for them to have children themselves, at least in the normal sense of the way that they can do it, right? And yet, in light of that reality, God still makes a promise to them. No, you will indeed have a son. And as a result, they initially believe in this promise. For example, Abraham believes in God's promise here, and it says famously in Genesis 15, God declares him right before him. In other words, Abraham, you are saved, not because of what you have done, but because you have believed in me. You have believed in my promises, and as a result, you are right with me. And so it seems like it starts off well, right? But then, common to the human experience, we doubt, (laughs) we doubt, um, maybe maybe too too much times that we like to admit, Abraham and Sarah begin to doubt God's promise here, and so as a result, you have Sarah, Abraham's wife, she musters up a plan for Abraham to have a son with her Egyptian servant, Hagar, and as a result, the plan works, Hagar gives birth to a son for Abraham, and they name him Ishmael. And, the, and yet, despite Abraham's lack of faith here, because this is not a high point for Abraham in his life, yet God is still faithful. God is still faithful despite humanity's sinfulness, and he is still faithful to keep his promise to Abraham. And so what he eventually does is that he allows Sarah to miraculously give birth to a son in her old age with Abraham, and they eventually name this child, this child of promise, they name him Isaac. And yet, conflict would eventually occur between Ishmael, the firstborn, and Isaac. And yet, God commands Abraham to send Hagar and Ishmael away because it's only going to be your son Isaac, the son of promise. It is going to be Isaac and his descendants that will inherit all the promises, all the promises that God was giving first to Abraham. And so that's basically Genesis 15 to 21 in a nutshell. Again, if you want to go for all the details, I recommend you go reading those chapters. And yet, Notice Paul's language in verses 22 to 23 in Galatians 4. Notice how he summarizes the story. First, he says that Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Where Ishmael is born by a slave woman, Hagar, because she is the servant of Sarah. Isaac, on the other hand, he is born by a free woman, or Sarah. And yet, Paul continues to comment that Ishmael was born according to the flesh. That is, he is born through the biological means of Abraham's and Sarah's human efforts to have a son. That's how Ishmael was is born. And yet, in contrast, Isaac is miraculously born according to God's promise. However, I'm explaining this, right? And Paul is summarizing this story for a reason. I know this may seem like, John, how does a past like this have to apply to my life today? Especially when it comes to topics like freedom or human flourishing. And I can assure you that you will all soon realize that, everything, that it has everything everything to deal with not only the Galatians' freedom and flourishing, but also all yours tonight, loved ones. And, so, and and because of that, Paul begins by doing so, by doing something very interesting after he summarizes this famous Old Testament story. Look at what he starts doing in Galatians chapter 4, verse 24, looking at the first part of that verse. He says these words. Now, referring to the summary of that Old Testament story, he says, Now this may be interpreted allegorically, these women are two covenants. And now, I can spend a lot of time just on what Paul said here about the word allegory. There is a debate among scholars surrounding just what what does Paul mean exactly when he says, now this could be interpreted as an allegory. And what I can say is that in the Greek, it just literally means this is an allegory. (laughs) And there's there's a debate about that. However, though, I don't think it's the right time or place to really get into the weeds of the issue because it does get complicated. If you're curious, talk to me afterwards. But what what I can share with you, loved ones, is that what Paul is simply doing here, without getting all difficult, what Paul is simply doing here, um, uh, starting here in, in Galatians 4.24, he is just illustrating the story of Hagar and Sarah. It is an illustration. He is illustrating the story of Hagar and Sarah for the Galatians. He is not presenting a mode of interpretation here. He merely presents an illustration. And this is something, and if, it's like, and if that seems like, well, like, oh my, I don't get that, John. Well, think about it. This is something that preachers do all the time, right? Whether it's pulling an illustration from creation or maybe from the Bible, preachers do this all the time to make a point. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here to the Galatians. He is taking a story from the Bible, illustrating it in the lives of the Galatians to make a point. He is illustrating the story because he wants to make a point in line of the situation with all these Judaizers at Galatia. And so Paul's goal then, his goal is to not only support um, what Paul has already written to the Galatians so far in his letter, but he also wants to help the Galatians understand something. What is your place in salvific history and how can this illustration help you understand that? And as a result, as Paul's about to you know, bring an illustration to help the Galatians um, with their you know, problems at the church, this actually serves as a good reminder on how you, loved ones, can teach and share scripture, especially if, if, if it's with unbelievers. Because not only does everyone love a good illustration or a story, but really the simplicity of sharing an illustration, right? They're, they're easy to grasp and, and people find them and people love them, right? And even when you just think about sharing stories or illustrating, who was the king of them all? Who was the master storyteller as we read about it in the Bible? Was it not Jesus? Because how did Jesus often teach? taught in parables, those are illustrations, right? Those those are illustrations that Jesus liked to communicate with, right? Communicating unfamiliar kingdom truths through familiar earthly pictures. And so Jesus did it, and I think that's good enough for us to do it as well. And so I just encourage you, you know, keeping in mind Paul's example here, the next time you find yourself sharing the Bible in, in a discipleship or an evangelistic context, consider using illustrations or stories to help you communicate biblical truths in a simplistic fashion. But yet that then begs the question, how does Paul illustrate this story here of Hagar and Sarah? Well, first he says immediately in Galatians 4.24 again, that he refers to these women as two covenants, or as the word means, an agreement between two parties. So he has two agreements or two covenants in mind here, and he actually clarifies what does he mean by that in the following verses ahead. And so look in your Bibles in Galatians 4.24, the end of that verse to 26. This is a bigger chunk, but it makes sense. I think it'll be helpful to kind of read these together again. This is what Paul says, starting at the ending of Galatians 4.24. He says, in light of these two covenants, in light of these two women, one is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. And Paul is so helpful here. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. And, and so you look at that, right? It's like, Paul, like, it, this is kind of an interesting passage, right? It's kind of weird. It's, it's different. To understand what Paul is saying in these verses, look in verse 25 in your Bibles. I, I want us to look at the word correspond. That's going to be key to kind of help understand what Paul is saying here. So look at that word "correspond" in verse twenty-five of your Bibles. In the Greek, this word "corresponds" it was actually used to speak of soldiers. Soldiers lining up in different columns or rows for their army formations or whatever they had to do, and or in other words, kind of think of these two rows right here, right? Like you got this group of chairs right here, and I got this other group of chairs right here. That's kind of what Paul is, how Paul is using this word here, right? Paul, you know, just kind of like you know when you think of like these two rows of chairs or two rows of people. Paul is lining up two covenants next to each other for the sake of comparison. And so you got this group of chairs right here, this chairs right here. Imagine Paul's bringing a co- one covenant right here, another one right here. He wants it to bring, in, bring them side by side so you can look at both of them side by side and see the comparison that Paul is trying to make here to the Galatians. And so let's look at one part of this comparison, one side of the column. Look at, verses, look at the end of verse 24 to 25. You have the first covenant, Hagar. Hagar, Paul says, represents Mount Sinai and the present Jerusalem because her children are in slavery. That's all the facts on one side, right? In contrast, on the other side, at least in verse 26, Paul shows the other side of the covenant. The other column he's contrasting. You have Sarah. Although he doesn't, you know, implicitly use her name, it's implied there, right? If, if Hagar's on one side, Sarah's on the other side, especially since he summarized these two, these two ladies in, in the prior passages. So on one side, you got Hagar. Verse 26, you got Sarah. She represents the Jerusalem above, which is free, and she is a mother, right? I'm, I'm going to unpack each of these um, metaphors shortly, but what is Paul getting at here? right? It's like, Paul, Like, what are you trying to say here, right? Just spit it out, man. And you got to remember, Paul is taking the story of Hagar and Sarah in Genesis, and he's making an illustration, right, to address the current situation in the Galatian churches. And so with that in mind, then, let's start with the first one. Let's start again with Hagar. Remember, Hagar was the servant of Sarah. In other words, she was a slave. And as a result, Paul says, she represents Mount Sinai. And now think about that, Right? What is the significance of Mount Sinai? What is the big event that happened in the, in the Old Testament that, that makes Mount Sinai so significant? It's where God gave the law, right, to Israel. It's where God gave the law to the nation of Israel. And God's law itself, just, just taking it for itself, it's good, right? It's, it's good because it's a reflection of God's perfect nature. But why does Paul connect it to Hagar? Hagar's a slave, So so how is Mount Sinai this theme of slavery, and what Paul has been communicating throughout the entire letter of the Galatians, that if you depend upon the law for salvation, as the, the Galatians were trying to do, as the Judaizers were teaching, if you depend upon the law for salvation, that leads to slavery. And this is the argument that Paul has been making, especially in, in Galatians chapter 3. If you go back and read that chapter, it becomes very clear, but to, but to summarize what Paul is getting at. Paul makes it clear that every single human being throughout time and space, all are under the curse of sin because all are under God's law. We, we, we've all broken God's law. We are not perfect. We all know we ought to behave in a certain way, but we also know that we don't if we're honest with ourselves, right? So we're all under the curse of sin because we're all under God's law. And since we're all under the curse of God's law, all of humanity deserves the judgment of the law, which Paul makes clear, is eternal death. That is the consequences. That is the wages for our sinning against God. And furthermore, to keep adding upon this, when Paul says that Hagar is the present Jerusalem in Paul's day, what Paul is ultimately getting at there is that that's referring to the Judaizers. That is referring to those who currently live in Jerusalem who think they are saved by the law, who, who believe that they can be saved by their own good works. And as a result, what Paul is getting at, remember these two columns, we've got Hagar right here, I'm going to get to Sarah in a minute, but with Hagar, right, she's Mount Sinai, she's the present day Jerusalem, her child, children are slavery, if you're on this side, right, what he's getting at is that anyone who depends upon good works of the law, or your own performance for your salvation, Paul's point, you're a slave, you are a slave like Hagar, Hagar is your mother, Why? because you are still dead in your trespasses of sins. And this is actually a reason why Christians are the most free people in the world. When I said that earlier, I'm not saying that arrogantly, right? I'm not thinking that we're the greatest people in the world. Look at us, right? We're so amazing, right? Because we're not. We're sinners. We just, we're we just willing to be honest with the world. Like, no, we're just as bad as you. The thing that makes us different is that God has showed his mercy, He has saved us because apart from God, humanity deserves nothing but God's wrath. We can do nothing to be set free from the curse of God's law. And that's why believing you are free when you follow your heart is dangerous. This is something that the culture shows down our throat all the time, especially to to the children, to the youngsters, right? Just because the culture embraces that true freedom is being your true authentic self, that's what people want to say. You are not free just because you get to do whatever you want. You are not free just because you get to sleep around with whoever you want. You are not free because you get to choose whatever gender you feel like you feel like today, right? People do that. You are not free just because you get to choose, like, ah, I'll have kids later in life, or ah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a part of that in-group because they embrace me for who I am. I mean, at the end of the day, you're not even free with the type of ice cream you like to eat when you go to the ice cream parlor, right? You're like, John, what do you mean by that? Because at the end of the day, no one... In the history of humanity, is free because all are a slave to whatever you desire most in life. That is why no one is free, because every single human being is a slave to your desires. And the fact that, just to give another example, another illustration, the fact that you all chose to be here tonight, right, You desire to be here the most um, for whatever reason, right, at the exclusion of everything else. And yet what's interesting about that, you limit yourself to this one decision to be here at the exception of everything else, choosing to "Eh, stay at home tonight, I'll go watch a movie. No, you wanted to be here, and as a result, although it may not feel like it, you actually are, in a sense, you enslaved yourself, right? You, You enslaved yourself to choosing this one thing of being here tonight at the expense of everything else. As G.K. Chesterton once said, he was a British writer, and I I sometimes quote this passage, but it's it's very important. He once made the observation that every act of the will, that is what we're free to choose each and every single day, is actually an act of self-limitation. The desire to action, the desire to do anything, is really a desire to limitation. In that sense, every act, everything that you do is an act of self-sacrifice because when you choose anything, You reject everything else. In other words, when you choose to do anything, right, you are actually limited to whatever desire that led you to make that decision itself. For example, say you choose chocolate ice cream, right? Like, uh, I'm going to get some chocolate ice cream today. And yet, you chose chocolate ice cream because your desire for chocolate ice cream was far more greater than, say, vanilla ice cream, right? Again, the fact you choose chocolate at the... you chose chocolate or that flavor of ice cream at the, ex- at the expense of everything else. And as a result, you limit yourself to that one choice based on the self-limitation of whatever your greatest desire was at that moment. And so based on what Paul is saying here in Galatians 4, at the end of the day, since all of humanity is a slave to their desires, we are all slaves to, like Hagar. Although Christians have been set free from our shackles, right? But at the end of the day, when we we come into this world as human beings, we are all slaves like Hagar. Why? Well, I can tell you, it's not because you try to be a good person, right? Maybe like the Galatians or whatnot. You're not a slave like Hagar because you try to be a good person, but but it's it's because you're not a good person. We're all slaves because we're not good. The Bible says that we're all sinners. Our desires are limited to our nature, and since the Bible says that we have all sinned, we have all fallen short of God's glory, we have sinned against him, we're, we're evil, we're wicked. We're, as a result, we're all guilty of breaking God's law. And since the consequence of breaking God's law is the judgment of his law, the consequence for your sinning against him is death. That is what Paul is getting at here in illustrating that Hagar is, in a sense, the law of Moses. Again, it's an illustration. Because if you're trying to save yourself, right, like the Judaizers or like what the Galatians are trying to do, um, I don't care if you're trying to find... No matter how hard you try to save yourself, experience human flourishing, or true freedom, if that is apart from the one mean that God has given to humanity to be saved, that is Jesus, you are truly a slave. You are a slave like Hagar. And as a result, if he walk down that path, you will never be free at the end of the day. You will be a slave to your desires, your sinful desires, and you will keep serving your sinful desires that not only leads to this downward cycle of brokenness, but it will ultimately lead you to eternal death and hell. And yet, in contrast, Paul says there is a better way. There is a greater way, and he says that it's it's that that the Jerusalem above, that Jerusalem is free, and she is our mother. In other words, the Jerusalem above it refers simply because remember the the present Jerusalem Paul is getting at these are those who believe that they could be saved by good works of the law, like the Judaizers or what the Galatians were trying to do. If that's the present Jerusalem, what is Paul referring to this Jerusalem above, right? So a couple ways to take it, but keep it in the context of Galatians. It is basically referring to all who believe in Jesus by faith alone. Whether it's whether you are a Jew or a non-Jew, right, like the Galatians, since salvation is the work of God alone, right? And God is in the heavens, it's it's it is a reference to the heavenly Jerusalem that will one day be complete. When Christ returns to make all things new and you have a people, both Jews, Gentiles, a multitude of all the nations, worshiping the creator God in perfect worship, and they're going to be there united as one family, not because they're all good swell people who just pulled up their own bootstraps and just saved themselves. No, the one thing that unites them is their common faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, as the Messiah. And, and 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 with that in mind, then the reason why he says that, like, well, Sarah, she is your mother, um, is that the, the Galatians they also once believed that they were saved by faith, because Paul is saying here that, hey, I believe in Jesus by faith as well, and not only that. But Christians for the past two thousand years believe in Jesus, and so do we today, loved ones. Right, and so what Paul is getting at here is that where Sarah bore Isaac, right, and Isaac is this child of promise. Not Ishmael. Ishmael is in slavery with her mother Hagar and all those who follow her by doing her own thing. Isaac is this child of promise, and Christians believe in the ultimate fulfillment of that promise, right? And as Paul makes clear earlier in Galatians, the ultimate fulfillment of the seed promise wasn't just Isaac, or, nor was it Isaac's son Jacob. Rather, it was, the, it was the ideal seed that everyone longed for, the Messiah, which would ultimately be Jesus, right? And this is another reason why Christians are the most free people in the world. We have this heavenly Jerusalem as our mother. Sarah is all of our mothers, right? Because we don't believe that we're saved by works. We're saved by faith in Jesus. And just to really kind of illustrate really the dichotomy here between, you know, Mount Sinai and Hagar and the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion with Sarah, I love sharing this analogy with people. Say you have two mountains. One I'll call Mount Sinai, one I'll call Mount Zion. Mount Sinai, the thing that makes Christianity so unique in the world is this. Every world religion will say that God sent some sort of prophet so that they can tell humanity, here's an instruction manual of how you can ascend the mountain of the Lord yourself. That's, I know it's very reductionistic, but that's generally every religion in the world. We'll call that Mount Sinai, right, for the sake of the illustration. On this other side, though, What makes Christianity so unique? What makes Christianity so different and this message so beautiful? Well, here's a mountain. And God sends not just a prophet or a man, but he has sent the God-man, Jesus. And he sends Jesus down the mountain and and he tells humanity, you cannot ascend the mountain except through me. You must believe in me by faith. Only then can he be restored back to the God who made you. Only then can you experience true flourishing in this life. Only then can he be truly free from your slavery to sin that separated you from God and experience everlasting life with him, not by your good works, not by your own doing, but by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And since Christ dies, right, as a sinless substitute on the cross for all who believe in him, you are set free from the curse of the law, and now you are now you're now you're able to serve the law keep the law maker who is God through the person and work of the law keeper, which is Jesus. And this is the goodness of the gospel, that when God made all things perfectly right, He made everything good from the farthest galaxy all the way to the smallest molecule. God made everything perfect, even the pinnacle of His creation, right? Humanity. He made all of us in His image. Not not to worship self, not to worship anything in his creation, but to ultimately worship him. To enjoy everything in the creation as a good gift and to glorify God, right? And yet we know that we don't live in a perfect world like that, right? We live in a world with brokenness. It's been tainted with sin. We live in a world with great evil, great wickedness. Why? Well, many of you know the story. Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God, they wanted to do their own thing, and as a result, sin and death came into the world, they sinned against God, and as a result, we have been reaping the unfortunate consequences ever since. And the consequence of such sinning against God is eternal death, and we all experience this in some way, shape, or form. We we all experience the loss of loved ones. We all experience the brokenness that happens in this broken world, and whether the unbeliever wants to admit it or not, if there's, if there's anyone here who doesn't believe in Jesus or anyone online, I can tell you, you know this is true, because I know you feel it, and I know you feel it because you do whatever you can to try to alleviate that pain, and yet what I can tell you is that there's nothing you can do to alleviate that pain. There's nothing in this world that can take away that pain because you are under the curse of god's law and such a curse leads to death not just physically but unfortunately eternally in the life everlasting and yet the goodness of the gospel is that god so loved the world that he gave his eternally begotten son this is why we celebrate christmas our culture has forgotten about it right but we remember the true meaning of christmas that god has sent his son jesus who was fully god Added humanity to himself, so that he would redeem a people from all the nations back to himself in perfect worship. And Christ did that by be, by being born through the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit under the law, so that he would live a perfect life, earning perfect righteousness. So that when it was God's appointed time, Jesus the God-Man would go on the cross, die on the cross, be, be buried, and three days later rise again from the grave. Because he wasn't. Because he is who he says he was. He was the risen Lord. And that is goodness for you and I and for anyone here who doesn't believe in Jesus because your greatest need is to be born again. Your greatest need is to be set free from the curse of God's law. Your greatest need is to be forgiven every sin so that you could be restored in perfect worship back to the God who made you and only Christ has met that need. Other religious philosophies may claim that they have the way, but Christ says himself, I am the way the truth, and the life. You know why? Because I was the perfect God, man. I died on the cross so that if you believe in me by faith alone, repent of your sins, and follow me, you will be saved because all your sins are placed into Christ's account and he pays in full on the cross and in exchange, he gives you his perfect righteousness. It's, it's, it's this bank account exchange, really, so that when the Father looks upon you, he, he doesn't say like, oh, you're a good person. No, because he didn't earn Christ's perfect righteousness, nor could you ever receive it. Rather, he gave it to you as a gift and you, and, and, you, and, you, and you were able to receive it, sorry, not because of what you have done, but because of your faith in Jesus. Therefore, this is the goodness of the gospel. Christ dying on the cross is the only way to be saved. He is the only name under heaven that saves, and that is the only way to experience true flourishing, true freedom, true joy in, in life, not only now, but in the life to come, because now you're able to live and to abide in the one you were always made to live, and that was, and that was in perfect fellowship with the God who made you. That, this is the gospel, and I, and I exhort, if there's anyone here who doesn't believe or anyone online, you must repent and believe in Jesus You might have doubts. I encourage you, please reach out to me and the pastors. We'll love to help you wrestle with them because I do not want you to go one more day living in your sins because we're not promised tomorrow because you die. That's it. The judgment is after that. And so you can take it or leave it, right? I leave it to you, but I exhort you, please keep these things in mind because you are now held accountable to this message because if you embrace this message now, you will, be, you will experience a freedom that you've never experienced before, that only Christ can give. And yet, if you deny this message, yeah, you can live your life, but just know that you will still meet Jesus one day, and he's not going to be your savior, as it will for Christians who have embraced him by faith, but he will be your judge. And so don't walk away out of this place in your sins. Repent and believe in the gospel, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. As Jesus once says in John eight thirty four to 36 just to close off this section, he says to all, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the gospel. And so, like Sarah who bore Isaac, right, the child of promise, loved ones, you are a child of Sarah. You are all children of the promise because you have placed your faith in the ultimate seed of promise, and that is Jesus because of your faith in Him alone, and yet, in light of all the stuff that we just talked about, Paul then adds a reason to support all that he has just said right now, and he actually quotes a very interesting passage in the Old Testament, and he actually is going to quote from Isaiah 54:1 in the very next verse of Galatians. So look at what he says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 27. In light of all that he has said so far, right about Hagar, Mount Sinai, and Sarah and Mount Zion, he says, "For it is written." Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Very interesting passage. You might be looking at this like, John, why does Paul even bring this up here in Galatians? What's the connection, right? Well, contextually, going to to Isaiah itself, looking at chapter 54, if you're familiar with, with the book of Isaiah... Then just by looking at Isaiah 54-1, you'll realize that this is following one of the most famous passages in all of the book of Isaiah, and it's that prophecy about the suffering servant, right? Actually, it's a prophecy about Jesus himself. This is something that Isaiah himself prophesied about 700 years before Jesus was even born, and we have the manuscript evidence to back that. That is true. This is a prophecy about Jesus, and not only about Jesus, but that he would come as a servant, a suffering servant who would die on the cross, ultimately, to redeem a people from all the nations back to him. So, so that's what immediately precedes this passage. But what is Isaiah 50, 54 itself about? Well, the hope of the suffering servant, this is the ground for what Isaiah says here in Isaiah 54. Ultimately, right, this passage is referring to a barren woman. A woman who cannot give birth to children, right? Whether because she couldn't give birth to children herself or because she didn't have a husband. Whatever may be the case, the connection is clear why Paul brings this up in Galatians 4. Because who also was barren in, in, in Galatians so far? Sarah, right? Sarah was barren and she was only able to bear a child by God's miraculous promise, right? By the promise of God. And yet what's interesting about here is that this barren woman here in Isaiah it is actually referring to a woman in a particular time in Israel's history. It is referring to the time after the exile. And what I mean by that is that there's a time, you know, when Israel's in the land, they're in Jerusalem, you know, you know reaping the benefits of the land, yet they rebelled against God for a long time, and, and as a consequence for the sin against God, God disposed them from the land, right? For 70 years, eventually they come back, but that's kind of really the overall context here. And what's interesting is that when he says, Rejoice, O barren woman, What does he mean by rejoice? Why should she be glad? She can't have kids. She doesn't have a husband. Why should she rejoice? Because this woman, she is coming back from the exile. She is coming back from exile, and although she may not have a husband, she may not have children, she may not have the security, she does have one thing. She's coming back from the exile, and she is going to be restored back with her God. The new exodus, right? You know, yeah, she may not be like like a woman who has children or a husband, but she does have the one thing that matters, and that is a relationship with God. She is being restored back to him. And what's interesting here is that Isaiah even says that the children of the desolate one who has no children will be more than those of the one who has a husband, right? And again, what he's getting at is is that this woman... Who's coming back from exile, back to God, back to Jerusalem of worship? She is truly blessed, right? Not that having children isn't a blessing, because it is, or being married isn't a blessing, because it is. But yet, what Paul, what, what, what Isaiah is getting is like, no, this woman is truly blessed because she is going back to God. And it's with that in mind, then, right? That passage that the Galatians, in a sense, like this barren woman in Isaiah, like Sarah herself, who was barren before she had Isaac, the Galatians themselves and even you tonight, loved ones, you are all truly blessed. Because you know why? Because by your faith in Jesus Christ alone, by placing your faith in that suffering servant, you are being restored back to God in perfect worship. And this leads me to to a couple application points. And this might seem like a rabbit trail, but trust me, it, it connects. I know at our church, right, at Sovereign Way Christian Church, um, we have a lot of singles. You <laughs> know you might be like, "John, how does what does that have to do with this passage here?" Right? And I and, and I and I read this and I and I and I was just reading just doing my research and I came across something that like, "Wow, this actually has a lot to say about people who are single or people who have had miscarriages, can't have children. There's a lot to this promise here that Paul brings up in Isaiah to to refer to the Galatians here." What do I mean by that? I'll start with the singles out there. I know there's maybe just Alexis, right? You know, there's a couple, Albert. I'm single myself. But if you know a single at the church, send this part to them because um, it's going to be online. What I can say is this first. It breaks my heart and I've talked to people at our church here. It breaks my heart when I've heard singles here, younger. this is from the younger people, when they feel like they are an inferior Christian because they're not married, because they're not Christians. And and the reason why they feel that way is because in our own little Christian bubble, not at this church, but just overall in American Christianity, they feel the sense that I am not as faithful as a Christian because I don't, I don't have a spouse or I'm not raising up children in the fear and abundance of the Lord. You know, I'm just single. I can't find anyone. What's wrong with me, right? And if there's anyone here, listen to this, who is single, I want to tell you that there's nothing wrong with you. I'm not saying that one is more blessed if you're single or you're more blessed if you're married, right? Both are a blessing in its own right. What I want to tell you is that the essence of true blessedness, whether you are married or not married, when you have many kids or no children, right? I want to tell you what Paul was telling to the Galatians. The essence of true blessedness is that you know God, and God first know you. And the reason why that is a reason for you to be joyful, because think about it. When you enter the family of God, you might be single, might be married, doesn't matter. Because when you place your faith in Jesus, you're adopted into a family. And when you're adopted into God's family as a son, as a daughter, you inherit a family whether you like it or not. You inherit mothers and fathers, brothers, sisters, aunts, and uncles. This is what it means to be part of the family of God. Consider what Jesus says, right, in Mark three thirty-three to 35. As he was teaching, one of the people in the crowd was like, Jesus, your, your mother and your, and your siblings are here to see you. What does Jesus say? Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, This here are my mothers and my brothers. And he was referring to his disciples. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so just to keep it simple, whether you are single or married, can have kids or no children, you are all blessed in your individual calling that God has called you to, because you know God and God, and you are known by God Himself. And so, so find contentment in that, loved ones. If you're single, I'm not saying that don't keep praying for that perfect man or that or that or that or that, or that um, beautiful woman, right? Pray for that, but just be content in in your relationship with Christ, because Christ is the perfect lover, right? He is the one who loved you and gave Himself for you. And and for those who are married, right. Comfort those who are single or comfort those who are divorced or widowed, right? Um, We are all family. We belong to one another. We're called to do life together. This is the goodness of the gospel or a response of it, right? That we're not just forgiven of our sins and are declared right with God and have a relationship with him. That's That's the prize, right? But, you know, but just but just a consequence of that is that we have each other. We are a family. And so we are not alone. We have each other. And so encourage each other, loved ones, and live out this reality as the family of God. And so Paul, at this point then, he ends the illustration. He ends the illustration, and I know I spent the majority of my time on the first step, right? Paul illustrating the passage, which is really the main point, right? But yet... Paul finishes by going to the second step, right? And I'll be brief about this. And this next step is how he applies everything in his illustration so far to that, to the Galatians. Why? To give them consolation, to give them peace about their situation. And this leads to the second step, right, of tonight's passage of how Christians are truly the most free people in the world. And it's that Paul applies its principle now. Paul applies its principle. And so look at Galatians 4, 28 to 29. Paul writes, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now. So it is now. And so in line of Paul illustrating the allegory of Hagar and Sarah, he now applies that to the Galatians, like Isaac, who are children of promise. Why? Because they have placed their faith in the fulfillment of that promise of Isaac as I said, which is Jesus, the Messiah. And yet, Paul's doing another quick comparison here. He's he, he is lumping Isaac and the Galatians together, and what he's doing in contrast is he's linking this this the, the one who was born of the flesh, right? Ishmael, who was born to, to Hagar. He's is linking Ishmael to those of the Judaizers, right? So he's linking Isaac and Galatians on one side, and Ishmael and the Judaizers on one side, right? Think about Ishmael. He says that this, that this one born according to the flesh, he was persecuting the one born by the Spirit. In other words, Ishmael was the one persecuting Isaac. And if you look at that context, right, Ishmael was not being very kind to Isaac. And, and, and if you want more information about that, I recommend you go check out Pastor Steve's sermon on this. And he gives the details why Ishmael was acting this way, so much so that it led Abraham and Sarah to respond to this, right? But nonetheless, Ishmael has given Isaac a hard time, Likewise, Paul uses that as an illustration to say, Galatians, the exact same thing is happening to you. So it is now, right? Where Ishmael is giving a hard time to Isaac, the Judaizers are also persecuting you. In what way? By deceiving you with a false gospel. And so what are the Galatians to do then? Paul gives a brief answer in the very next verse. Look at Galatians 4.30 where Paul says this to the Galatians. What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman, and so this is a direct quote from genesis twenty one ten and this is where Sarah tells Abraham to cast out Hagar and Ishmael why because ultimately Ishmael is not going Ishmael is not the one who's going to get the inheritance of promise that God is going to give to Isaac right that that's only going to be for Isaac Ishmael's not going to be inherit. It's not going to inherit it at all, and as a result, Sarah directs Abraham to do so, right? To cast out Hagar and Ishmael so that the promise is reserved only through Isaac, so that the Messiah can ultimately come for him, right? Well, in light of that, right, what Paul's ultimately telling the Galatians, before he gets into his application section, Galatians, you need to do this one thing. Since these Judaizers are not they're against you, you need to cast them out. You need to get them out of your lives, right? They are toxic. Get them out of here, Right? They don't want you to believe in Jesus by faith alone. Yeah, they might woo you with their words, like, oh, you need to do good works of the law, you need to be a Jew, and stuff like that. Yeah, they can do that, but they don't know it's gonna lead you to slavery. It's gonna lead you to hell. Get rid of them. Embrace Jesus by faith alone, because if you don't get rid of them, they you're not able to be restored back to what I'm calling you to do, right? To embrace Jesus by faith alone. That's what Paul ultimately tells the Galatians to do. Um, and then once he says that, then he's going to move on into all the beautiful application about how to live out the gospel and what does it really mean to be a free Christian under, under God's law as a Christian and a follower of Jesus at the ending of his letter. And yet, just another application. How does this apply to us overall, right? Because this is what Paul, in a sense, climaxes to. Like Galatians, here, this is what the Judaizers are? Get them out, right? Get them out, you don't need them. And I think for us, right, I'll, I'll keep it broad, ultimately is as, as Paul calls the Galatians to cast out the world or sorry to cast out the judaizers because they were um, they were um, they were a distraction to the to the Galatians faith grown in Jesus loved ones if there's anything in your life that is preventing you from growing more like Jesus you got to cast it out you got to kill it you got to get rid of it right it might it might lead you to being persecuted it doesn't matter right you got to get rid of it as I was reading in my daily Bible reading today, I, I, I thought this was a perfect passage to share on the significance of why we need to do this, love, and why we need to get rid of the sins in our lives that so weigh us down. Consider what Hebrews 12, to 2 says. The writer of Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne. God, a beautiful passage, right? And I'm not sure if you ever try to run with weights, it's, it's not comfortable. Imagine you have like 25 pounders and you're like running like five miles, right? You could probably do it, right? But you're ultimately gonna get tired and it's gonna weigh you down. That's what sin is like. As a Christian, if you try to run the Christian life, like, eh, I know that's there. Eh, I'm just gonna deal with it, right? Don't deal with it. Cast it away because you do not know if that is gonna actually prevent you from actually finishing the race. Cast it down, keep your eyes upon Christ and live for him. And even when life gets hard, loved ones, because I know that there will be times when you experience Horrible physical trials, spiritual temptations. I find great encouragement in in, in what Martin Luther says about this. In In light of him commenting on this passage, he says this, that be careful to learn the doctrine of justification that you're saved by your faith in Christ alone, right? For that is our only support against these infinite slanders and offenses and our comfort in all of our temptations and persecutions. In other words, no matter how hard life gets, your living hope is that you are known by God and that the fact that if you repented of your sins and believed in Jesus, no one can snatch you from the Father's hand. You will make it to the very end, despite what happens to you, because it's God who is keeping you to the very end. And it's with this in mind that Paul finishes in Galatians 4:31, So, brothers and my sisters, we are not children of the slave then, but of the free woman. And that is great news, right? Because you are not children of the slave woman leading to eternal slavery and sin, but you are children of the promise. Not by what you have done, but based on your faith in King Jesus. And so loved ones, rest in this promise again, that you're saved by faith in Christ alone. Because once you embrace this reality, then you can embrace what one African theologian once says, you can love God and do as you please, right? And I'm not saying that, you know, that's cheap grace. Like, oh, I love God, you can just live wherever you want, right? If you understand the passage, if you truly love God, Then you can truly live in accordance to the way that God has created you to live, to enjoy God, and to glorify him forever. Therefore, Christians are indeed the most free people in the world. Not only does Paul make his case by illustrating the story of Hagar and Sarah, but it also applies its principles too. And so loved ones, anyone here listening tonight, you can only find freedom leading to lasting human flourishing by your faith in Christ alone. The world could offer you slavery by enticing you with its sinful desires, yet it's only in Christ that you can experience freedom. Freedom satisfying your deepest longings in life that are only met when you embrace Jesus and not the world. So, loved ones, let's go before our Lord in prayer, and we will sing a final song and get ready for the Lord's Supper.